This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents a Baha'i perspective on life through interviews. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Bernard Streets a microbiologist who worked in industry, but when he retired, used his talents to help others in Costa Rica. I started the interview by asking Bernie where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. Uh, I grew up in South Bend, Indiana, northern Indiana, right on the Michigan line. It was a nice town to grow up in. It was a uh, a rather diverse community, immigrants from different parts of Europe, as well as people who were in the state of Indiana, who came there, you know, descendants from people from England and Scotland and places like that, and and also in the central part of the state, a lot of people of German and French ancestry, so it's quite a mix, but I grew up in the industrial north, and we had uh, many ethnic groups represented in our neighborhood where I grew up. It was a, a pretty cultured town with two major universities located there, in close to Chicago, but it was in the industrial north uh, as opposed to the more rural and farming south southern part of the state. Hmm. How long did you grow up there? I was born in 1933, so I went uh, all through high school there. Now, what was your family growing up like? First of all, I had my, my parents, my dad, who... His name was Dr. Bernard Streets and my mother, Odie May Streets. Yeah. And, and what was your religious upbringing like? Well, my dad was born, he was in, uh, in the AME Church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. My mother was in the Baptist Church. And my dad had been the choir master at Olivet AME Church and had a very good singing voice and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So he loved music and it was in the late 30s that they discovered the Baha'i faith. They never were the same since. <laughs> they, uh, they really, uh, in time, embraced it. And, Do you know the story about how they found out about the Baha'i faith, or either one of them? Well, my mother and father both found out at the same time. My father had been, as I said, uh, very active in the, the AME church, and my mother would go occasionally with him, but she'd usually go to the Baptist church. They didn't have any problem with that. But my dad had, uh, had some run-ins with the minister over a number of things. And one of the things that irritated my dad was the practice of the minister posting on the church bulletin board in the, the front entrance uh, how much co- uh, contributions each par- uh, parishioner made the previous Sunday. Mm. He thought that was demeaning. And there were a number of things, and one time the minister came to my dad's office, and I guess he was sort of upset. My dad was with some patients, and he said, I'll be with you in a while. I must have been, I think it was around 1930, 
eight, so I would have been about five then, four or five, somewhere in that time period. And and my dad let him come into his office, and uh, there were some kind of heated words, and my dad told him to leave. In fact, my dad uh, opened the door and actually threw the minister off the porch. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> but it didn't hurt. He landed for <laughs> So he had to be really mad. Well, the upshot was the minister said, told my dad that, he required him as a doctor to, uh, and a professional person, to give X number of dollars each Sunday. And my dad said, oh, no, wow. you don't tell me that giving comes from the heart and has to be based on the wherever the, the, the parishioner is and emotionally or spiritually at the time and whatnot. He said, I'm, I don't, I'm not going back to the church. Well, one day he just passed by a newsstand and he decided to buy a paper. And he said that the papers he had, he brought it home, he sat down, he said, for when he sat down with the paper in his lap, it just opened up. And where it opened up was a half-page ad. And it said, the Baha'is of South in Indiana, something cordially invite you to a series of discussions about the Baha'i faith for, all, for every day of the week, starting with, I believe it was on a Sunday or Monday, I think it was uh, one of those days, that there would be a a Baha'i speaker from Washington, D.C., who would be giving a talk at one of the local hotels. Well, I, I think the title, he said, the topic was Progressive Revelation and Immortality of the Soul. But the thing that got his attention is that the name of the person who was giving the talk, my dad knew immediately that he, or he felt that it must have been a person of African descent because the person that had after his name, you know, bachelor, B.A., Fisk University, and mm. LLD, uh, his law degree from Howard University to black colleges. Mm -hmm. So he knew, and so he decided, they decided to go. So when they went to that meeting, and that's when my dad and mother first met Louis Gregory. And why don't and you explain to the listeners who Louis Gregory is? Louis Gregory was a dynamic Baha'i teacher who had been an attorney, a very spiritual man, and he had become a Baha'i in the, just shortly after the turn of the century, in, in around 1909, somewhere along in there. And he was very, a very distinguished lawyer in Washington and working for the United States government in the uh, Treasury Department. He was later on went to distinguish himself as one of the great traveling teachers of the Baha'i faith. Mr. Gregory was one of the well-known figures in Washington and had been invited by Dr. W.B. Du Bois to come and join the movement for uh, the rights of the Negro people. And Louis Gregory decided that these were based on special spiritual problems, and he thought he would rather go the spiritual route rather than the other way, not saying that the other wasn't important, but his calling was more in serving the Baha'i faith and the principles of the Baha'i faith, which all lead towards the oneness of humankind and the unity of all the peoples of the world. Mm. So Mr. Gregory saw that as what was really going to uh, transform society and the world. Mr. Gregory thought following the Baha'i approach would have a much more worldwide and lasting effect in working on the hearts of people. Mm -hmm. So, But he was very well thought of and highly respected by all of black America. Mm -hmm. So he was at this meeting? 
uh, he's the one that gave the, the talk. Okay. And then my parents and my dad got to calling every person of color that he knew to go to subsequent meetings. And a number of people, African-American people, or call African-American people in those days, either right. colored or Negroes, a little bit of history here. Right. So they went and started going to these meetings. But then, to make a long story short, over the long haul, uh, there were three families that really embraced the Baha'i faith and accepted the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah. They really, through their own independent study, so that was the streets, Dr. and Mrs. Uh, Robert Love, and uh, Mr. and Mrs. Alfred Haynes. <laughs> In the, the, each of those families right now, there are relatives who are fourth-generation Baha'is, mm. uh, just from that initial uh, exposure. And Mr. Gregory apparently was there for several days, you know, but they had what they call fireside discussions. It, it really uh, transformed the lives of those uh, three families, so it, uh, that goes all back to that, that first meeting or, or just the fact that my dad just happened to get this paper and yeah. sat down and it opened up and that was the first thing he saw. Yeah. Now, how old were you, Bernie, when your uh, parents became a Baha'i? Well, I can't remember exactly, but I know that when they that first meeting was in 38, but it was right there, uh, right around the start of World War II. Mm-hmm. You know, somewhere in there, it, I, I don't re- recollect that they didn't. I don't remember when all of that transpired because sure. they were going to behind meetings, and I'm not sure. In fact, the National Spiritual Assembly or the office, they really don't have any records of when my folks declared. I know that uh, on any list it says the date of uh, joining the faith unknown. Right. So, so, so you're about six years old. I, I'm gathering from the math. Uh, when they first made Discover, I was like, I think, five or, mm-hmm. five or six, yeah. Yeah, somewhere along in there. So I know that it was in the late 30s. Yeah, so you may not really have been aware enough to notice any changes in your parents' behavior because you were so young. Uh, no, but I noticed it when I was a teenager and stuff, very much so. I noticed a lot of change. Well, my mother really at first was antagonistic in the Baptist tradition. They were really strong on Jesus, and they just figured anybody making a claim would be an interloper, so she was very suspicious. But just from that first contact, and this is my my interpretation of stuff what she said, she immediately made a connection. Mm. So she actually declared first. Mm -hmm. My father's excuse was, Oh, gee, I've got too much old-world baggage. I have to really work on a lot myself, which I think was kind of a delaying tactic. But <laughs> he later became a Baha'i, or he, he became a Baha'i. Now, you, you said you really noticed a difference in your teenage years. What did you mean by that? Well, I could see in my father, he was pretty much a macho kind of guy, you mm-hmm. know, and, and he had what was typical of many men of his era. He was born in 1906. You know, women were supposed are supposed to just take care of the house, do this. It was like kind of not on an even par. Right. But I could see him struggling with uh, really change some of his thinking. You know, you know, a little comments like, "Oh, that's common." You know, something there goes a woman driver. You know, this mm-hmm, type of thing. Sure. A lot of these little things that creep into people's subconscious or even conscious, and they just For don't sure. realize what they're saying. Mm-hmm. What was your interest when you went off to college? 
Well, when I went off to college, I knew I was going to be in science, so I was a, a uh, microbiology and chemistry major, and I entered Indiana University in 1951. Mm-hmm. And at that time, there were only two Baha'is on campus. Uh, Lou Kinsey, they were living in the trailer courts, and these were mm-hmm. mostly veterans that had you know, been in World War II and whatnot, and and, and I was a freshman. We were the only two in the whole town of Bloomington, Indiana. <laughs> now, were there uh, any issues about segregation when you went to the University of Indiana? Oh, yeah. I was in the fourth year of classes of African-American students allowed to live in the dormitory. Mm. And when my dad was, was there, he, he had to live out in town. Uh, you know, they couldn't live in any of the dormitories. They, had, they could live out in town, renting rooms from nice colored people who lived in the community. Mm. Whereas any student from any foreign country, with the possible exception of, of any African com- country, were welcome with open arms. And this was true uh, pretty much across the whole board. Mm. Even the, the so-called Ivy League schools, uh, many of them claim they didn't, but they did. In fact, Princeton wouldn't even let a black person close to their prestigious school unless they were domestic workers or something like that. But even uh, many of them, uh, students of African descent, couldn't live in the dormitories. They had to find places elsewhere. Mm. So that was pretty pretty common. And, of course, in the South, forget it. <laughs> mm. No black students at any of the major state universities or private schools unless they were the, the colleges and universities started uh, during the Reconstruction uh, that were predominantly a black school, mm-hmm. part of the United Negro College Fund mm. consortium. Yeah. yeah. So when I went, went, entered there in '51, we were in the fourth year. They first let people of African descent live in the dormitories in 1947. So it was. So they were some. They were somewhat ahead of their time then, compared to the South. Oh yes. Yeah. yeah. In fact, in my freshman year, the Chief Justice of the Student Supreme Court was John Preston Ward. An African American student, outstanding scholar, later went on to be a Rhodes Scholar, and he was a pretty big man on campus. He was African American mm-hmm. and and blind. Oh wow! And, uh, oh yeah, uh, uh, and could play the uh, was an excellent classical pianist. Played the violin. Was quite a student. In those days, I later found that out that most of the African American students that were admitted, there were two two policies. There was one for students in general and one for people of African descent. Come to find out that one of the former assistant deans of students told me some years after that, except for the football team, that most of the, as he says, most of the colored students had to be in either about the upper tenth of their class. Mm. So it, it, it really created a furor down there uh, over a number of years why so many people of kids of African descent were Phi Beta Kappa, which is the highest scholastic honorary, <laughs> and uh, it didn't fit the stereotype. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah, so that was pretty true, you know, and that's, that's the thing. Uh, there was there was no such thing as affirmative action, which has been grossly misunderstood, mm-hmm. and nobody seems to talk. Uh, opponents of uh, affirmative action, think in terms of fairness, uh, are somewhat silent on the years that I know that where you were, the doors were closed, and where were all these people talking about that, mm-hmm. you know? 
And uh, so when you find out that you had to be in a higher ranking in your class than your white fellow students, to me that's some kind of discrimination, maybe on the positive side for those that can get in, but it just it was unfair to those students of color who um, were denied, whereas white counterparts could get in for you know being in the top quarter of their class or third. Mm-hmm. You know, thing. Right. So, but those are things that I don't usually dwell on. Those it's like you have to deal with the times, right. and but we were all dedicated to be the best students students we could be, and education was high on our list. Of course, that was high as being a Baha'i. Mm-hmm. But I can truly say is that most of my life there and in the dormitory with fellow white students, uh, there, I never had any real, any, uh, any real problems uh, that I know of. It was, uh, you know, you didn't have, they didn't integrate the roommates. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, right now that's all changed, you know. It didn't matter at that time, you know, uh, the fact that, you know, you ate in the dining room and all that, and so the campus was open. The only difference was that there were some places in town that wouldn't serve people of color, mm-hmm. whether they were from India, Pakistan, or Chinese, or Japanese, you know. Mm-hmm. So that got changed because we had a dynamic, excellent president of the university who really worked to change those things. That's great. So what did you do after college? After college, I uh, went into the Army and was drafted. The Korean War? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Korean conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the tail end of it, and mm-hmm. uh, then I was in graduate school. But in between that time, I was working in Montana for a little while, pioneering. And I worked. Now, when you keep saying pioneering, what do you mean by that? Uh, that is just serving the Baha'i faith and going to places where there were very few Baha'is and mm-hmm. helping out those Baha'is that were there in the community. So at that time, in the big sky country, <laughs> mm-hmm. there were very few Baha'is. But I landed a job as a fishery biologist with the Montana Department of Fishing Game in the Fisheries Division. Mm-hmm. So I was stationed at their headquarters in Glasgow, Montana, which is in the northern, northeastern part of the state. Mm. So that was a nice opportunity to do something for the high faith and to share it with people who would listen. And one thing I found about Montanans, they love to talk and they love mm-hmm. to spend time. How long were you there? I was there, oh, not long, about six months. That's when I was admitted into graduate school. Where'd you go to graduate? Uh, University of Michigan. Mm-hmm. What did you study in graduate school? I was, again, in, uh, in science and microbiology and chemistry, and uh, I did a lot of work in, in freshwater biology, and particularly in, in the microbial types aspects of it. And, and I worked while I was there for the Great Lakes Commission, which was centered at the University of Michigan in doing intensive studies of the Great Lakes from all the way from microorganisms to major ones. But I was more in the microbiology of it and the uh, biological significance of dissolved organic things that flow into the waters as opposed to some of the other work where other people were studying the influx of lamprey eels that would hook onto ocean vessels coming down the St. Lawrence into the Great Lakes, which created a problem with the lamprey just wiped out all the lake trout in the in the five Great Lakes, and that was a big major projects to go back and get the lampreys out and stuff, but I was in the more in the more ecological types of things. Mm-hmm. 
And then what did you do after graduate school? Uh, then I worked, went to work in industry and research for Miles Laboratories, and I was involved in microbial genetics and uh, working uh, on strain improvement in, in, in microbial sources of enzymes in food and me- medical use. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did work in textured vegetable protein. I was very fortunate when I came along of doing a lot of things, and also in fermentations like converting corn dextrose into citric acid, which goes into foods, of also into beverages, and one of the food acids identical to what naturally occurs in citric fruits, but it's one of the food food acids that give nice acidulum or tart flavors to various foods and beverages. And how long were you in that area and working for Miles Laboratory? I was there for, oh, a little under 20 years. Mm-hmm. And then I then I moved east and I uh, went into uh, into technical management mm-hmm. in the beverage end of things and was working in the in the city New York metro area mm-hmm. but living in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And I was ready for a change. Yeah, why was that? Oh, I don't know. You kind of get. I guess I had a feeling of wanderlust. Mm-hmm. I always said that as when I was getting up to where I was thinking about retirement, mm-hmm. I wanted to be close to one of the Baha'i, we call them Baha'i summer schools. Mm-hmm. And since my folks from the 40s always took us to Green Acre, and I just wanted to be closer there. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I made the move to go and was living in Ridgefield, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And then after I t- took early retirement there, then I moved to Manchester, New Hampshire, and Green Acre High School is 48 miles from my driveway. <laughs> and I wanted to be close to the mountains and close to a major yeah. metropolitan area. There's Boston, and I'm a half hour away from the ocean, mm-hmm. and I'm in, in mountainous country. So of all the places, why did you choose Manchester, New Hampshire? Well, it's very interesting. My first wife had died many years before, so my daughter, Karen, who had finished Mount Holyoke College, graduated in South Hadley, Massachusetts in 1982, came to Manchester, had a job with television station WNDF in nearby Derry, and there were a number of Baha'is there. In fact, the station had been bought by Dr. William Smith. So Karen met a Baha'i, uh, Diane Richmond. And she got to figuring, hmm, I think this would be ideal for Dad. Mm. So, and Diane wasn't married at the time, and so Karen is acting sort of like matchmaker. Well, anyhow, (laughs) one thing led to another. Diane and I just hit it off. After we got married, I moved up here. Mm -hmm. And you're there now. I'm here now, and then when I came up, I was doing some consulting. Worldwide, mm-hmm. consulted in South Africa, in India, and in Israel, throughout the, the U.S. And then I got, you know, getting older, get tired of that, and I was doing some other things. So then I hosted a television show where we taped two half-hour tapes a month, and they were shown on cable television throughout the whole state of New Hampshire. Then I did also a live call-in program on WKXL out of Concord, New Hampshire, radio. Then I was asked to 
the adjunct professor at the local Notre Dame College in Manchester, and I taught there for a while. So I was very busy, yeah. and things. And I did a lot of work in the high schools on talking to seniors about careers in science and things. And my wife was on the board of directors of the Latin American Center, and then I got actively involved in the, their summer school and, and working with young Hispanic kids. And New Hampshire will allow Spanish-speaking people to take their GEDs in Spanish, so I helped to prepare a lot of the adults who wanted to get their GEDs in the sciences. And, did that require you to talk in Spanish? Uh, for the most part, yeah. And, and where, did, uh, where did you learn your Spanish? Well, I um, started picking it up on my own, but I really kind of came into my own when we went to Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. And when did you go to Costa Rica? In 1991. Okay, this is after you got married the second time? Oh, uh, it was after, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. What led you to Costa Rica? My brother and his wife and their two grown sons decided to spend, I think it was their 40th wedding anniversary, I believe. Let's see, was it 40th? Yeah, just about the 35th wedding anniversary, I think it was, in Costa Rica. And he was then asked to, he had been a professor at UMass and was out in California. He was asked to speak at the Peace University there and he met with the National Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is of uh, Costa Rica, and they said they were looking for a couple. Here's what they're looking for. (laughs) In the Caribbean Atlantic side, uh, which is uh, the humid part of Costa Rica for the most part, they wanted someone, a couple, Baha'is, and preferably someone who could speak Spanish, and... Preferably if there was somebody who had been in the corporate world because they wanted, they had two missions. One, it was to consolidate the Baha'i community there, to look up 53 people that were on their rolls. They don't know what happened to them over in that, <laughs> over in that eastern section of the country on the Caribbean Atlantic side. And the second part was they said that since I had been in the corporate world, that at the time the Universal House Justice of the Baha'is had come out with the peace statement, and they wanted us to present the peace statement in the whole province of Limon. A lot of wonderful things happened during that time, and but that's when I really, you know, you had to sink or swim. But mm. a lot of the people of Jamaican background who lived in the province, who came over as free people, and they and the Chinese actually built the railroads. Uh, many of the, especially the older ones, and even a lot of the younger ones, they looked on English as their mother language hmm. because of their ancestors coming from Jamaica, but they also spoke Spanish. I and Miss Emma Dickey, she had been there 19 years. She went there from Pasadena, California, 19 years prior to that time. She was pretty established there in Puerto Limon, the capital of the province. And the National Spiritual Assembly had funded that there'd be a, a high radio program, which was every Sunday at 6.30 in the morning for a half hour. And so um, uh, Emma asked me, because I had also taught black history and a number of things, and was a history buff. So every other week it was in Spanish. Now the other week it was in English. Mm-hmm. Well, after a while, while you're there, so we said we're doing both of them, and of course she was fluent in Spanish after being there 19 years, mm-hmm. and I muddled along. 
Mm-hmm. But after a while, things start picking up, and then I volunteered because there was a problem of, of cholera, which was really hit epidemic proportions in Panama to our immediate south and Nicaragua to the north, that the capital in San Jose they formed a cholera commission, and it was to be centered at the local hospital in Puerto Limon, which had been 75% destroyed by the earthquake. That was another thing. Our original place was uh, distributed down on the Panama border by a 7.8 earthquake. So we had to get other quarters, and that was another interesting thing, too. So then I later got on the Collar Commission quite by accident, and I volunteered myself. What happened was my wife had uh, a, a serious abdominal attack. Well, Emma knew the, a man who was a hospital, uh, a doctor at the hospital, and she had taught his children at a private school where Emma taught. Mm-hmm. And so he looked on Emma with great fondness and for what he did for in teaching his children. So she called him, and he came over to the place, and he examined, he says, well, I think she's passing a kidney stone or something. So he said, told me to get in the car and come down to the hospital. Well, going down, well, I realized that he was the second in command of the hospital and the chief of, uh, of the emergency part, what was left of it. I had read in, in the national, one of the national papers, La Nación, and the other was La República, that they had formed the Cholera Commission, and it was going to be centered primarily in the province of Limon, which was the one that was in the most danger of any cholera type of thing. So in doing that, I told him I was trained as a microbiologist and whatnot, and chemist, mm. and, and I said I'd like to volunteer my services. Well, he practically jumped out of the car to hug me, <laughs> and he says, good. So anyhow, I, I went there, and he gave me the antibiotic or the, and, and the injection I had to give Diane and stuff, and he drove me back. He said, could you be in my office at 1.30 tomorrow? I said, I'll be there. I want to introduce you to the head of the hospital. So to make a long story short, that we had travel teams that were training uh, people uh, about how to handle possible cholera patients. So we trained the cab drivers. We went out to the uh, the, the Puerto Limon is the site of two major docks for loading fruit. The ships from all nations would be queued up out in the harbor, coming in day and night, loading with all the wonderful fruits there. This was a, a province that contributed 53% of the gross national product, but it was the poorest one and very, very well neglected. Uh, so I got on the Collar Commission, and that way, when they had a big, big meetings with the big wigs from uh, San Jose, and Diane was a, is a community health nurse, so here the two of us, and they went around at the first meeting after why we were there and on our background, we said that. And when when I think he came to Diane first and said, my husband and I, he's a microbiologist, chemist, and I'm a community health nurse, and, and she had been a special and she knows every facet of community health, all the way from IV to AIDS, HIV, to wound dressing, infant child care, and all that stuff. And so when we said we were Baha'is, the head of the commission stopped this wonderful woman. She said, oh, she said, I know the Baha'is in San Jose, wonderful faith, wonderful, loving 
people, and she went on, and so people are, are, are wow. <laughs> so anyhow, so all kinds of wonderful things start happening from that. So anyhow, mm-hmm. as it turned out, I would go out as the uh, microbiologist person and with a, uh, a doctor and a nurse to train these people, uh, especially the cab drivers, and to overcome fears and what you do when you got a patient and stuff. And then there were 25 beds in one section of what was left at the hospital that was totally for any type of cholera patient. So anyhow, that, as we prayed about meeting people of influence, that really opened the door mm. to where in the long run we gave the peace message to 26 people, including the head of the hospital. But the, there are a lot, many people who are at the hotel, big supermarket merchants are of Chinese background. So my wife got the only remaining presentation copy of the World Peace Statement in Chinese. Mm -hmm. And when we met with the head of the China Association and explained to him what this was about and, and we wanted to present it, and he looked at it and he started reading it, and he took it, and he, he held it very respectfully, and he put it, and he kissed it. He said, I guarantee I will have every person of Chinese background read this. Mm. And so then we gave it to uh, Thelma Curling, who was a lawyer, and she was of African descent, and she is Costa, was Costa Rica's official representative to the United Nations on Women's Rights. So she got a copy. So it just worked. The captain of the rural guard, and the it was just amazing how things opened up. And then we were initially given Emma Dickey and I went, and we were initially given ten minutes with the governor of the province, Lady Chavez, as L E I D Y, it's a common female name. Well, interestingly enough, of the fourteen provinces in Costa Rica at that time, eleven were governed by women. Hmm. And so Lady Chavez, of, of one of the largest ones of, of, of the province of Limon, it ended up being an hour and a half. She wouldn't let us go. Yeah. So it was, miracles happened. Yeah. So that was a wonderful experience. For our listeners, can you give us a little bit of a background on the peace statement and the circumstances in which it was written by the Universal House of Justice, our international body, and just a sort of a quick summation of what one would find in, in the statement. Yeah, the, the Universal House of Justice, as an act of love, addressed this to the peoples of the world. And throughout the world, leaders of countries, heads of states, people in uh, responsible positions were each given wonderful presentation copies of this. And then there were copies that, that people all over the world could get, but it was addressed to the peoples of the world. And it pointed out to the fact that the earth is but one country and mankind its citizens, and that for the salvation of the human race, that people had to subscribe to a higher calling, that they had to look beyond their national borders and recognize that the peace of the planet is the responsibility of everybody, and that the way it can come about is that old traditions of Including people because of nationality, gender, or ethnic or racial background, were passe in that the future of humanity lay in solving this uh, spiritually because these were spiritual problems, and that peace was essential for the the total world, 
and that all of the forms of prejudice and exclusion, female-male equality, had to be established, that the peace of the world would not be established without the influence and the, the cooperation and the participation by women. Mm-hmm. And so all these things that have divided the world, gross forms of nationalism, and, and, and the world was now, you know, in a turmoil, mm-hmm. and that this was, was offered for people to ponder upon this and consider what they could do and to investigate what Baha'u'llah had to offer for mm-hmm. the salvation of humankind. Mm-hmm. So tell me about the earthquake. We were in San Jose, and uh, the earthquake uh, where we were in, uh, where the place where we were supposed to stay, it hit the province of Limon. It was the 7.8 Richter scale. What happened was the Earth's mantle, there was a sliding of this plate, and the coast of, of uh, Limon rose about six feet. Mm. and beveled down to about 12, 18 inches of the Panama line, about 60 miles to the south, 70 miles to the south. So I don't know how many acre feet of topsoil and trees washed into the Rio Banana River and all over. There, it was said that where there were hills, it was flat. Where mm. there was flat, there were hills. There was extreme pollution in the water. There were only one or two places where people were even allowed to even think of going in the water. Whole trees, a uh, hundred and some feet long, just filled the ocean, and it was mass devastation. Mm. And uh, we didn't have any water for a long, long time, and so mm. uh, we had to get bottled water. And uh, when we finally got back, we went on a project with some of the Baha'is to an all-indigenous people community at Uharas, we were Quebecar Indians, and we did a service project. So we went down there for a couple of weeks. We loaded food. We actually cooked for all the people there. My wife had classes in maternal care. Practically every child there who was five and under had pooched out bellies mm. and loaded with tapeworms. Mm. We did stuff for sanitation and just an act of service. And we slept on the basically on ground mm. or in, the, in one of their buildings until the road was open that we could get to Puerto Limon. And as it was, we had to go over uh, a circuitous route over a mountain, one of the mountains, to get there. Once they had gotten it to a place where you could travel, then there was an avalanche. Mm. So we had to go up over another high precipice there and finally got into where we were to, to stay. When we were there after a month, when people found out we were Baha'is, there were some uh, clerics in some of the religious groups there that were telling their parishioners that the, beware of the Baha'is, they killed babies and they drank their blood. Hmm. So one day we heard this chanting out front of what became the Baha'i Center and with tambourines. People in our neighborhood, our area, their barrio, they, they were shunning us. Hmm. So what we did was we made drink um, uh, out of some of the great fruits there, and we just took it out and served the people, mm. and that kind of tempered things. And yeah. as it turned out, it's so many uh, wonderful miracles to me happened. Diane, being a community health nurse with almost 30 years' experience, 
we took a lot of medicines and things there. Well, we found out that over in this area, one in four children had asthma. As I said before, the hospital had been 75% destroyed. A lot of the pharmacy thing, you know, and a lot of the key people were very poor. So anyhow, uh, it's like Diane said that uh, the Baha'i Center became La Clinic of Baha'i, and people, when they found out, they would come. And we had so much uh, meds that we had collected and brought with us that we just started being a service. Then all of a sudden, except we had one neighbor, Leticia, well, her husband was there sometime, but Leticia and her kids were always wonderful. So they were the only ones that didn't shun us. And then after a while, the whole neighbor came around because when no one had any water and they were working on the system, amazingly, where we were, the water came on. Mm. And it would come on the first 15 minutes in the morning, 15 in the afternoon. Well, we just thought it was common throughout the area, mm-hmm. but it wasn't. So then the neighbors started buzzing, you know, why are the Baha'is only getting water? Then we were getting a half hour. They'd, they'd let us know half hour beyond who, those who could get it. But houses on either side of us didn't get any water. Mm-hmm. For some reason, people were buzzing, what's going on? So people were coming by, it's almost like it was a shrine. <laughs> well, anyhow, I went through the neighborhood and told people that I would let them know in the water, and I called the landlord, and he had some extra hoses, and I hooked them up, and people would come and fill their buckets and stuff. Then we had floods, and everybody had water except us on either side. We had one little drip from the ceiling, and we looked across the street, and shoes and stuff were floating. People had four feet of water in their house, and then the buzz went around. Only El Central Baha'i, the Baha'i Center, had no water. <laughs> so a number of things happened like that. Is And then we were getting water longer times, so and no one was getting any. And then finally mm-hmm. some people started getting, but it was the talk of the whole community. Something's going on there. Why the Baha'i yeah. didn't get flooded, and we were getting water when no one else was getting. <laughs> and the Baha'is went around and offered the water, which people mm-hmm. came. Mm-hmm. And then we started uh, giving uh, classes uh, Diane started an English class for children and for adults. So we had large classes. And so as people came, and then suddenly they found out, well, oh, Baha'is aren't too bad and whatnot. And so it, it went the opposite way. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of miracles that happened. Mm-hmm. But we had been only out there about a couple months when we were going to San Jose to get books for the Baha'i Library. So we had made the ring. We'd take the express bus, which take about three and a half hours to get to San Jose, left six in the morning, get there, get the books, uh, have dinner with Barbara and Johnny Marino. Diane was one of the Baha'is. Uh, a beautician was going to do her hair. We were going to catch the 7 o'clock express bus, get back at 10.30. Well, it was raining as we were going into the Baha'i Center. Diane fell. Pop broke her kneecap on her Ooh. right leg into two pieces, so there she sits in a puddle of water. She calmly says, I'm going to re- have to require surgery. Mm-hmm. So Barbara Marino says, well, I'll call the doctor. Diane says, no, let's get the Baha'i orders, the books all settled, and then we'll call. Oh, and Barbara God. Marino, who was the secretary at the end, they says, I don't believe it. The woman's sitting in the, in the water, her knee is broken in two places. All she's thinking about is getting the books for 
unfortunately, the hospital that Barbara knew about, called La Clinica Biblica, was one that the U.S. State Department used at the Mormon Church. And as it turned out, another miracle, uh, Dr. Picado was the only uh, orthopedic guy who had been, he, he had gone to college, uh, medical school in Costa Rica, but he took his orthopedic training at the Cornell Medical School and the Campbell Clinic, famous Campbell Orthopedic Clinic in Memphis, Tennessee. So he was using the newer lightweight cast, not the plaster pair. Mm-hmm. So he's the one that worked on it. That's how that happened. Mm-hmm. And so um, I had only the clothes on my back, but fortunately I had a light jacket, but I was staying with Johnny and Barbara Marino, and I'd go to the hospital, uh, catch a taxi. So then when John had a cast from up by her hip down to her, with only her toes sticking out, how are we going to get back on the bus? Well, there's no way. Well, Jimmy and Ruby Seals, you know, Jimmy Seals. From Seals and Crofts. Yeah, and they have a place in Santana, so Jimmy and Ruby had a van, and so they and their daughter, Violette, who drove back, and he, they stayed with us, and and that's how we got back. Yeah. Then we, as we, we used to walk through the neighborhood of the barrio saying prayers, just walking through, and people would talk to us and wouldn't shun us. And when Diane now she's on crutches and the cast, so that was a source of interest. Mm. So, as it turned out, there was a, a teacher at Seven Day Adventist School, Yonori Gale, came up and said, Oh, you poor thing. And she said, you know, she says, oh, take care of yourself. And then to make a long story short, she she wanted to come and, and visit and brought some fruit. And she said, you know, I've been hearing these stories, especially from my elder about the Baha'i. She said, you don't seem to be people that would drink baby's blood that we got to talking. <laughs> so as it turned out, Yonori came to, she wanted to find out more about it, and mm-hmm. she later became a Baha'i. And yeah. So it was a wonderful experience. Since I had also taught black history, and we were walking through town, we went into the library, and so they had a small thing on black history set up. And I stopped and I said, yeah, this is so-and-so. And all of a sudden, I heard the head librarian, and it was Margaret Simpson of African descent. She said, did I hear what you said? And she said, what? And she said, yeah, you know a lot about Baha'i history. And then she, we got to talk, yeah, I talked taught it for also for 35 years, and she says, you're the answer to my prayer. Well, then, come to find out, she was part of a group of, of people of color called NEPFA, which is an Ethiopian word that meant togetherness. It was an organization of uh, professional black women so that they could try to do something to further the contributions of from African peoples to, to Costa Rica and to for them personally. And so that opened up so that then I was asked to come and speak at uh, every church that was predominantly of color on black history. So then that oh, opened yeah. up a lot of things. And so a, one, a lot of wonderful things happened. And, and the fact that those people there in the province were wonderful, the fruit company, Beatrice Foods, Dole, all of them, they put these big rubberized tanks down in the central part of the town and it was about maybe 100 feet by 100 feet by 5, filled with well water. People would come with their buckets. You'd see grandparents coming with their children. Nobody griped of the inconvenience of some places without electricity, 
and, and certainly everybody was without water for a long time. Mm-hmm. And they just made do. And I thought, gee, what beautiful people. Mm-hmm. And so you had a nice mixture of the people of African descent, Jamaican, mm-hmm. uh, Chinese, Bribri Indians, and all kind of mixtures thereof in Chinese. And wonderful, beautiful people. It's beautiful, the mixtures of the people. So it was really just the ideal community. I asked Bernie to describe the media work he did in New Hampshire. There's a group of uh, people, and many there were many of the Baha'is that started. It was mainly people of African descent. Up in nearby Chichester, and Davin and uh, Blanche Tyson, an interracial couple, they were both retired. She's white. Dave is an engineer and black. And we were all together one day. It was a mixed crowd. There were some white Baha'is, and one of them now works as, as one of the great audiovisual people in working in Wilmette now, Craig Rothman. Mm-hmm. So um, we're sitting around just discussing different world situations, and somebody said, you know, it would be really great if we could do something that maybe people could hear from a non-traditional perspective, especially from African-Americans, about different things that certain issues or something with people worldwide or internationally. So, gee, that's great. Well, Dave, who was this engineer and, and inventor, he had actually had a studio in his basement, a big house there in Chichester, out in the nice woods, the great north woods. And so we started doing that. Then one of the community cable companies out of Concord said, well, wow, let us air it. And then as it turned out, then, then finally at Manchester here with studios in Portsmouth, they wanted it. And so at that time, Dave Tyson was sort of the MC, and I was one of the regulars, Baha'i. Dave wasn't. Sandy Hicks, the Baha'i, was the regular. And Lee Jones, Baha'i. And we had others. And so we'd sit around the table, four or five of us, discussing issues. And, and then uh, later, I became the, the host. And it was called the Circle of Friends. Hmm. And so we'd do two half-hour tapings a, a month, and they would show the first half-hour for two weeks of the month. And, but it went through the whole state of New Hampshire. It, was, it became one of the two most popular programs. And we talked about every issue. We did our homework, and we had always, those of us at Baha'is, always tried to introduce, when possible, you know, the concepts. Uh, that we believed in, and somehow or other would come out naturally that as members of the Baha'i faith, this is so and so. So it was all treated naturally, and we just brought to the fore a, a three-dimensional view of things. Uh, we talked about affirmative action. We talked about outsourcing of jobs. We talked about male-female equality. We talked about is justice really blind? You know, we just brought to fore a lot of things, and even today, even though. Uh, when AT&T bought out the cable company and decided they were going to do, they just destroyed the station because they didn't know the business. And so it later was bought by uh, Comcast. Mm-hmm. And so we never did get back on the air, but the radio program went off a number of t- years, and then they were bought out by somebody, and they canceled all programs. So we haven't really got back to that. We figured it ran its course, but people still stop me and say, we really enjoyed that program, we really got a lot of good balance, and we always highlighted 
outstanding books for people to, to be more aware. And we would put periodically, we'd put things, you know, like, you know, the high position on male-female equality or a race or something like that, you know. Mm-hmm. And we had quite a following. We in a French program called Bonjour were the two most popular programs in the in the whole mix. Mm-hmm. So it was really in line with the high principles of just being fair and presenting another aspect. For example, we were talking about Is Justice Really Blind, one of our series, and we said that, that here are the national statistics that for selling crack cocaine or using and whatnot, here's what happens, mm-hmm. that only less than 3% of people of European ancestry go to jail, and yet 96% of African Americans for the same offense go to jail, and 97% of Hispanic Americans for the same offense go to jail. Mm-hmm. The question is, justice really blind? Right. And then what's the effect? Mm-hmm. Well, then people reading or seeing will assume, well, two groups are drug drug users mm-hmm. and pushers for the most part, and yet that clouds the issue. And mm-hmm. people, when they see this, the fact that so many Hispanic blacks are in for this, they're just assuming, well, yeah, that's how they are. And yet you, get, you go in and get the statistics, and then you say, is justice really blind? Well, why is a certain segment of the population just gets a smack on the hand and they don't go to jail. Right. So, you know, little things like that. And people would stop us and say, you brought such balance in. It was just mm-hmm. a whole, just uh, nice to see a wholesome program that really was had some substance to it. Mm-hmm. So we talked about so many, and during election time, and, mm-hmm. you know, the whole system, party system, and, yeah. and talking about, consider this. Yeah. Is, it a, is it a positive force? Are there people that are talented that should be in positions that can't get it because of the way the, the party system is set up. You know, just things like that. Right. And we talk about peace and things like that. So those are great avenues because there yeah. was a strong commitment of the people involved there. And we'd have guest people on that uh, when we were talking about different things. Mm-hmm. We talked a lot about education. And well, you know, with the Internet, it's something you could do again. Because you can always put it on the internet and you get the worldwide audience. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we've been toying with the idea of the Circle of Friends of the community television, but right now our project has been to publish 15 types of postcards that highlight the contributions of black New Hampshireites over history who have done things that go mm-hmm. back into colonial period. Mm-hmm. Valerie Cunningham of the highest one that really brought to light. It was the driving force of the now sponsored by the Chamber of Commerce in Portsmouth of the 25, 26 stations on the Portsmouth Black Heritage Trail. You can look at PortsmouthBlackHeritageTrail.com and you can mm-hmm. tie into that. Valerie Cunningham's a Baha'i who's a historian, grew up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And so what you have in Portsmouth, thanks to that, with Greenacre and the Baha'is and the NAACP in Portsmouth have a very wonderful relationship going there. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of good stuff going there. We would highlight stuff on the Black, uh, Portsmouth Black Heritage Trail. Mm-hmm. A lot of people had thought that 
people of color weren't, with the exception of Native Americans, were in presence. But uh, eight people got off a boat, Africans got off a boat in what's now Prescott Park there in Portsmouth Harbor there in 1645. Mm. And uh, Harriet Jacobs, a free black in Milford, wrote the first novel, but it's really based on herself, called Our Nig, The Life and Times of an of a black girl in New Hampshire uh, in 1857. Mm. So a lot of stuff which goes to, to show that, from the Baha'i concept, is that the glory of the human race is that people from all parts of the human family have contributed things in, in this type of thing and, and, and not glorified one over the other. That's what we try to do with the Circle of Friends. Well, Bernie, thank you very much. It was, oh, a pl- it, was a, it was a pleasure to interview. Ah, oh, thank you so much for that, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that interview with Bernard Streets, a microbiologist who worked in industry and when he retired used his talents to help others in Costa Rica. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Hello, I'm Warren Odeschulette host of A Baha'i Perspective on Saturday mornings here on WXOJLP. As you know, nothing is really for free. Although Valley Free Radio has the word free in it, we still have to pay the electric bill and the rent and any repairs or replacement parts to our very used equipment. So we hate to hear the sound of... That's right, dead air. So please join us in supporting local radio programs that you won't even hear at your local public radio station. You can send donations to the Media Education Foundation, Valley Free Radio's sponsor, at 60 Masonic Street, Northampton, 01060, and help us to stay on the air. Thanks. O Son of Spirit, my first counsel is this. Possess a pure, kindly, and radiant heart, that thine may be a sovereignty, ancient, imperishable, and everlasting. The Baha'i Faith, uniting the world one heart at a time, 1-800-22-UNITE, or visit our website at www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.